Welcome back to another episode of Bet on Yourself. This episode is one you absolutely will not want to miss. Are you an entrepreneur who's facing the challenges of massive scale and booming growth? Could you use some advice on how to pivot fast and build a team for resilience? Or are you a parent struggling with getting your kid's education back on track from lockdown and trying to make the switch to online learning? Well, my guest today has all the expert answers you're dying for. I'm a rational person. I I understand statistics, but they just seem not just random chance. And so, you know, I've said, well, maybe benevolent aliens are helping Khan Academy so that Khan Academy can help prepare humanity for first contact. Sal Khan is an entrepreneur who founded the not-for-profit Khan Academy, a free online education platform where he has created and uploaded thousands of bite-sized videos, step-by-step problems, and teaching a wide variety of subjects from mathematics and sciences to arts, humanities, and life skills with instant progress tracking. Khan Academy offers learning for all levels, from pre-K all the way up to university. Their mission is to provide a free, world-class education to anyone, anywhere. Before running Khan Academy full-time, Sal worked as a hedge fund analyst. He also has three degrees from MIT and an MBA from Harvard. Since March of this year, the Khan Academy has seen a 300% increase in users. Over 30 million kids have been using these videos, and as of 2020, it has more than 6 million subscribers on YouTube. During this chaotic year full of pivots and exponential growth, he's also found the time to found schoolhouse.world, an initiative to connect people all around the world to learn together for free. If you, like me, are wondering how Sal has pulled off all of this and is saving the future of the world through education, I hope you'll listen to the very end where he shares his answer, which, spoiler alert, involves benevolent aliens. (laughs) Okay, without further ado, Sal Khan. Sal, thank you so much for joining the Bet on Yourself podcast today. You and I go way back, actually. I think I first met you in late 2008, if I remember right. Those were the early years, yes. <laughs> it's great to be here. Well, thank you so much. I, um, you are, your time must be very, very much in demand right now. So thank you for sharing all of your wisdom with our listeners. Just to get us started, for those of you who... who for those of the listeners who might have been living under a rock for a while or not been exposed to the Khan Academy, I wonder if you can maybe walk us through some of that just brief foundational history of how you got this idea and got started, the mini history of that. And then I, I really want to move on to the pandemic version of, of what you've built. Yeah, you know, it was back in 2004. Uh, my original background was in tech, but I, I was now after business school, a year out of business school working as an analyst at a hedge fund just gotten married, was in Boston, family visiting me from New Orleans, and it just came out of conversation that my 12-year-old cousin Nadia was having trouble with math. So I offered to tutor her remotely. Uh, when she went back to New Orleans, she agreed. And a long story short, you know, that same Nadia that was having trouble with actually unit conversion, she got caught up. She, uh, you know, she got actually a little ahead of her class. And that's when I became what I call a tiger cousin. And I called up her school and I said, you know, I really think Nadia should retake that placement exam. They said, who are you? Uh, but surprisingly, they, they, they let her t- take her that exam. And, and Nadia went from being in a remedial track to an advanced track. So I was hooked. I started tutoring her younger brothers. Over the next 18 months, word spreads in my family, free tutoring is going on. Uh, <laughs> working with 10, 15 cousins, family, friends all over the country. 
And, you know, the background in software, and this is a family project. I had my day job, uh, but I started writing software for them so they can get as much practice and feedback. And that was the first Khan Academy. Uh, it had nothing to do with videos, uh, but a couple of years later, 2006, a friend suggested that I make some, some videos to scale my lessons. I thought it was a horrible idea. I told him, YouTube is for cats playing piano, not for serious math. Uh, but I gave it a shot and they were just to supplement the, the exercises of software I was writing. But my cousins famously told me that they liked me better on YouTube than in person. <laughs> and, you know, they, they liked me, they liked having me, you know, accessible, but, you know, as an infinitely patient, repeatable cousin, you know, that you could watch at two X speed or half speed and there's no judgment, et cetera. And then, it, you know, people who weren't my cousins started watching. And, you know, frankly, that's probably about the time that we first met <laughs> in 2007, 2008. Uh, 2008 was when I set it up as a not-for-profit with a mission of free world-class education for anyone, anywhere. And then 2009, you know, I frankly had trouble focusing on my day job. And I uh, quit uh, the day job and, you know, saying, surely someone will recognize that the social return on investment here is just, you know, astronomical. But it was a tough year, 2009. We were living off the savings. Uh, you know, our first child had just been born. You were uh, but by the bootstrapping when I first met you. That was the bootstrap stage. You were. So it was very bootstrap. I was projecting more more um, credibility than I had <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and uh, such a fascinating part of your origin story because right now, if I just look at the number of daily active users you have, and if you were charging one dollar, that's a lot. So. Can you walk me through early on? Did you ever anticipate it would get this big? And did you walk me through your philosophy? What is the, the foundational philosophy around Khan Academy and making it free and a not-for-profit right from the beginning? Yeah, you know, my whole life is like a constant battle and tension in my head between like delusional optimism and um, like severe pragmatism. Uh, and you know, I, I oscillate between it. So when I was tutoring my cousins, you know, the, the severe pragmatism said, hey, this is a useful thing. You're going to be able to help five, six, 10 cousins. Very meaningful. I was enjoying it. It was a kind of a nice hobby way to stay connected with family. But my delusional optimism said, hey, Sal, you know, this is what software is all about. This is what scales all about. If it works for your cousins, why couldn't this scale to like 10 million cousins or 10 billion cousins? I was like, oh, no, no, you can't think that, Sal. Just keep working on it with your cousins. And so put one foot in front of the other. But, you know, I kept oscillating. And by 2008, 2009, it's like, no, this, in theory, really could, you know, at the time, I was like, maybe it could reach a million people or 10 million people. You know, in the back of my mind, I was thinking maybe billions one day. Uh, but it, it's just been that. And, you know, ever since we set up as a real not-for-profit, got some, our first philanthropic support, it's, just, it's been that, that same tension. I mean, even today, there's stuff that I think could be game changers for like billions of people in the next decade. But then I, I, I know if I told that even to our existing team, they'll just like laugh me out of the room. So then I try to make it very relevant, like a, a baby step that can be that where people say, okay, that makes sense to kind of grow this by 10% next year. And then people are more likely to believe it. Uh, but I, I always have that. Frankly, I don't try to do anything that's pragmatic and tactical unless it has that option value of, of being a, a big deal in the future. I have built my career around visionary CEOs and people often ask me, what is the common denominator among them? And I think you've just articulated that. People who can think in that way, who focus their energy on the right opportunities and can really anticipate what's about to scale for the most good, um, for me is one of the top five qualities. So I just have been, I remember the day I met you, I think it was in our office at Google um, when you were visiting Eric Schmidt and kind of 
explaining this vision to him, I saw that right away. I just knew something really special was happening with you. And you had that firm foundation under you, which I think is a big differentiator between those who survive those early bootstrap, stressful proof of concept years and, and those who don't. So I, I think somehow you come by that naturally. It must be, you know, some of your upbringing, your bootstrapped um, roots within your family. But uh, I just have always been really impressed with that. Well, I'm flattered and I'm glad it looks better on the outside because it's a mess on the inside. <laughs> Honestly, Sal, um, so I have right now CEO um, consulting clients around the world, literally on four different continents of completely different industries. Many of them have the wonderful problem of things are currently breaking because of massive um, traction that they're getting during pandemic because their particular products are really needed. And um, I think what you just said is of great comfort to many of them because they all feel like they're making it up as they go. They hope they're right. They hope they're going in the right direction, but things are kind of breaking um, just because that's what happens as you scale rapidly. So I'm really glad that you shared that that's how it feels for you on the inside because it's so easy to compare your massive success on the outside to how other um, CEO founders are feeling at the moment. So <laughs> thank you for being super authentic about how you're feeling with your journey. Um, what something you said earlier really resonates with me about education. I have always been a very hardworking student, but I wasn't particularly talented at anything in school. Um, I just was willing to outwork everyone in my class to be at the top. And I do feel like if I had something like Khan Academy when I was young, it would have really helped me. For example, I was a good student until I got to chemistry. And then I think it exposed some of those, what you say are some of my gaps where there was a tiny concept that maybe I got a 90% on an exam or an 80% and I missed that. And once I got to chemistry, whatever that concept was broke. And so I thought I was bad at science until my very last year in university, I took a weather class about climate change. And I just like, I got my best grade out of all of my courses in my undergrad studies. And I thought, oh my, I thought I was bad at science. And it just lit up my mind to think like, maybe I, that wasn't a permanent self-definition. So walk me through what, what you do. You, you talk a lot about these labels that sometimes kids are given between gifted, average, or struggling. And what I think is most beautiful about what you've built is helping identify these little gaps so that we don't need those labels and kids can really accelerate through those. Can you walk us through kind of the process? Because I know it's so much more than just the videos now. You offer so many resources to students. Yeah, and, and to the last point, you know, a lot of people associate kind of kind of the videos, but most of our resources as a not-profit, which is primarily philanthropically donated, is is on the practice side because you know that's where the real learning happens on that practice, that feedback, that assessment in any domain, especially in academics. And then the videos are there to to supplement it. But the point you're bringing up, you know, this is something that I was intuiting when I was working with my cousins. I had even seen that well before my cousins, where I'd see friends in high school who were super bright who could you know, crush me at chess, but for some reason they were all of a sudden failing an algebra class. And what I saw over and over, sometimes I would just be their informal tutors that they just had gaps in their knowledge. I saw this with my cousins. Uh, and then when you think about the traditional school system, it makes sense why they have gaps in a traditional model. Everyone learns everything at the same pace. After a couple of weeks of homework and lecture, we get a test, you get a 90%, I get a 70%. Even though that test has identified gaps, 10% for you, 30% for me, the whole class moves on to the next concept, probably something that's going to build on those gaps. And that process just keeps happening and the gaps keep accumulating. And in something like math and in a lot of the sciences, but really almost any subject, but especially math and science, if you don't, if you don't really master dividing decimals or really master basic exponents, there's no way that you're going to be able to do algebra well. You might be able to fake it, but every now and then that decimal is going to show up or every now and then that exponent is going to show up. If you don't know your algebra really, really, really well, 
there's no way that you're going to be able to do calculus well. And we see that in the, in the national data that 70% of all kids who go to community college, actually 65% of all kids at the Cal State four-year system have to take remedial math. And remedial math is not a euphemism for 11th or 12th grade math. It's a euphemism for seventh grade math. They, get, they finally get to the college system and the college is saying, wait a second, you have so many gaps. We don't even think you're ready to learn algebra yet. You have to go back and learn pre-algebra. So the system is going through the motions in sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade. You take classes called algebra and geometry. But since those gaps keep accumulating, people have to start watering it down. And unfortunately, this is most affecting historically under-resourced groups. And, you know, people just say, well, it's fine. Let's just keep doing it. But they're the ones that suffer the most because, and it's, you know, no one took the time to fill in the gaps. Now, if we were talking 50 years ago, the only way to fill in the gaps is lower the student-teacher ratio, get everyone a personal tutor, figure out something on that front, uh, which is very costly. But that's where Khan Academy, where we're focused, is if you can let you know every teacher knows that their 30 kids are all over the place but if they can have all of them working at their own time and pace on Khan Academy and then the teacher gets real-time data well before the the unit test on where all their kids are they can do more focused interventions with certain kids they can understand who's progressing who's not uh, make the class time actually more interactive while uh, not letting these gaps persist and you know I was intuiting it but it turns out there's a whole body of research around this called mastery learning it's well documented, you know, Benjamin Bloom did a study in 1984 called the famous Two Sigma study where students had a two standard deviation improvement, which is dramatic. I mean, it's like going from the becoming an average student to a student in the top five percentile because of mastery learning. But every time people, you know, researchers did this, they said it's not practical because how would a teacher do this with 30 kids? But that's where tools like Khan Academy, I think, can, can finally make this practical. I know that so many of the listeners right now want me to get into exactly that. Like parents are struggling, educators are struggling, t um, students are having a hard time. And I definitely want to get into all the amazing things you're offering um, because I, I, my mind has so many questions. I mean, I'm the oldest of seven children. So I've always been surrounded by my siblings and students. I've got a million nieces and nephews. And so I'm kind of seeing my sisters trying to work full-time jobs and be, <laughs> be teachers to my beautiful nieces and nephews. And it's a struggle. So I really love um, and so appreciate what, what you've built. Uh, but before I get into, into the details of what you're offering and the way in which you're empowering parents as teachers and teachers as, as supplements to that, I'm curious how you've kept the wheels on. I mean, you've had 300% growth um, in, in this spring in the pandemic. You have 20 million users a month, 115 million registered users, and you're covering 46 languages. You're basically single-handedly trying to save the world. How are you keeping? How are you keeping it together? And I, I think it's because you must have a very strong leadership uh, relationship. You've got other really um, empowered executives working for you. You, I just, I have to believe that everything's beautiful under the hood, or else it's impossible for one person to do this properly. So it's all perfect and, and yeah. super easy. Uh, no, no, it's, uh, no, it, it, no, first of all, it's not definitely not single handedly. I mean, to your point, you just made. Uh, you know, Khan Academy is now over two hundred folks. And you're, you're absolutely right. You know, there's a, a, we have a very accomplished leadership team. You know, when we set up as a not-for-profit and, you know, the reason why we did so, I realized I didn't answer the second part of, a, a, you know, four questions ago. But the reason why we did that is, you know, imagine success as a, as a for-profit. And there's many examples of that in Silicon Valley, Google being one of, you know, you can do a lot of good in the world. Uh, so, you know, I think for-profits actually do drive most of the innovation in the world. But there's certain parts of the world where, 
you know, market forces don't work well or they don't lead to outcomes that aren't consistent with our values. And I would say education and maybe healthcare are two of those areas. And so that was the, the intent behind setting it up as a not-for-profit. And really just, you know, I never wanted people to question what, why we, at the time, why I was doing it, because I was getting letters from people all over the world, thanking, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the question when you become a not-for-profit is access to capital. Are you going to be able to innovate quickly? And are you going to be able to attract great talent, especially in a place like Silicon Valley, when you're competing with the Googles of the world? Uh, and and you, obviously, it's a not-for-profit, so there's no stock. Every, every, everyone owns as much of Khan Academy as, as I do. But you know, the, the really powerful thing is over the years, we've seen that when you give people intellectually challenging work, a powerful mission, cool people to work with who are aligned, and enough compensation, you can you literally can get the best people. I actually think I'm I'm attracting better people at Khan Academy than even if I was, you know, the hot uh, kind of mid-sized startup in Silicon Valley, you know, unicorn, multi-billion. I'm getting better people. And, you know, even our leadership team, our president, COO, Ginny Lee, who really drives a lot of the operations, you know, she could be the CEO of any she ran major business lines at Intuit before coming. I know that she's you know, she regularly gets headhunted to run large uh, large enterprises, but she's just an example. I mean, we have many other folks all the way through the engineering team, literally some of like known people in the field uh, who could literally go down, you know, go go on the other side of Mountain View and probably make 10x. Uh, what well, we're paying them well, but they could still make 10x. Um, and that's why we were we've been able to keep you know when our our traffic went 3x uh because of covid it's because we have a really great engineering team who's been kind of looking around the corner and this is all in the midst of we've been doing a major infrastructure overhaul so it's kind of like you know just as uh, while you're doing a home remodel you thought you were going to have a small gathering um but then like you know 3000 people show up for the party all while you're doing a home remodel so it's, it has, it's, it's been a little wild. And, you know, I've got to say, I mean, just to make other people feel good or for me to use this as a bit of a therapy session, um, it, it, it's, it's been actually not just the COVID period, although I think the COVID period has been especially hard, but, you know, all the way up to it, every, I think, entrepreneurial journey from what I hear, I've only gone on this one in kind of a major way. You know, you think you're doing well and then you keep growing and then there's growing pains. You know, you go from five people to 10, 10 to 20 or 30 and communication is just different. Things get dropped and then you have to say, oh boy, I have to focus on that. But I really want to focus on that part. And then you have to find people that can kind of really compliment you and be very honest about your, with yourself where, where your weaknesses are. Uh, but even that can get tricky because sometimes, you know, you feel like, wait, but I'm getting a little bit, why are they asking me about that part? Because that's part, I think I can add value, but how do you tell them that like you can? So, so it's, it's just a constant cycle of like, you think you have it all covered and then a curveball happens two, three weeks later and it just rinse and repeat. So I, I, I'd be surprised if anyone would say any type of journey like this is a uh, relaxing one. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, for me, the way I, I keep myself sane and if, if I can even be classified that way is one, a lot of meditation. And you know, there's this, there's this notion from Vedic philosophy called, uh, well, that everything has one of three traits, uh, kind of a truthful trait in Sanskrit, it's sattva. And there's a rajasic trait, which is kind of, you know, raja means king in, in Sanskrit and in a lot of the Indian languages. Uh, but that, and, and then there's like tamasic, which is kind of chaotic. But it, it, when you think about action, rajasic action is when you do it because you're, you're fixated on the outcome. I'm gonna do it because it's gonna be awesome and I care or I'm gonna do it because I'm afraid of if I don't do it, something bad's gonna happen. The masik is, well, I kind of have to do it or you're not really thinking it through. Well, sattvic is truthful action where you say, okay, what's the right thing to do? 
don't think about the outcomes and just do it. And when you do that, it's actually very liberating. You're like, look, at any point in time, I'm just going to look at the options, do what I think is the right thing to do, and the chips fall where they do. And then that helps me a lot, you know, so you don't wake up in the middle of the night saying, did I make the right decision? Oh my God, what are people going to think of me, et cetera, et cetera. You say, I did the right thing. The chips fall where they do. Material reality is not everything, <laughs> et cetera. I think you, um, those are such good nuggets and ways and I haven't heard those leadership principles articulated in that way before. I think the glo- globally, we're all kind of in a moment of overwhelm because we're having to pivot so fast. We're making decisions for an unknown future. We don't know where the finish line lies. And so thank you for that framework of thinking about ways in which we can make decisions that feel like they're compartmentalized a little bit, that simplifies it so it doesn't become so overwhelming. And thank you for the beautiful principle about who to hire or who to surround yourself with. Because I think when you have such passion-driven, mission-driven people around you who are all aligned on the cause or, or what you're trying to create and give into the world, there's natural alignment around that. So I think it makes sense that you've created such a beautiful team that can pivot so quickly, have clear communication and not get lost in the weeds and just really solve for the right things. I think yeah, just that. I'll add the word passion, which, which you just used, the root comes from suffering. So, you know, when people say the passion of Christ, it's actually the suffering of Christ. So passion really is you care so much about something that you suffer. And so you're absolutely right. You got to compartmentalize a little bit, uh, not care so much about the outcome because then you're going to suffer too much. You have to just care about doing the right action. This is the most beautiful description of being an entrepreneur I've ever heard (laughs) because on the surface, it does feel like madness and it absolutely involves suffering. Um, I think it's in the book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, where he says um, there's only two emotions um, for an entrepreneur. It's terror and euphoria. And I, on my journey, even Google two years ago, I can 100% attest that that has been my experience. Um, but because the two, I mean, that, thank you for giving meaning to the terror side of it, but, <laughs> <laughs> because I, that's definitely been my experience. I'm curious what for you, so you, you have such a firm foundation and firm principles that are guiding you. What about the, this rapid period of growth has challenged you most as a leader? Uh, obviously you have this, this strong compass inside, but what have been some of the things that have challenged that compass? Yeah, you know, I think the last, you know, this 2020, you know, you, you've already going into COVID, you've already had kind of a, a tense public environment, a lot of polarization, a lot of people. Um, and you can imagine, you know, like our employee base is very passionate. Um, this is why they're, you know, they've taken pay cuts to, to work on this mission. And so the, they don't compartmentalize when they see someone suffering anywhere in the world, it affects them or, you know, in some cases they themselves. And so then you layer COVID onto that. You layer, you know, many of the parents and, you know, what I'm just describing is true of everywhere is that, you know, they're having to work from home for some people. It works out well, but for a lot of people, they're lacking that social engagement. Uh, you know, the ones that are working, you know, everyone has a lot of people have childcare issues, adding stress to that. They have family members, some of whom have COVID. I mean, I think by this point, almost everyone knows at least one person who, who you know, I, I know, I know two people who've died of COVID. Wow. Um, so, so, it, you know, everyone knows, you know, it's, it's a stressful time. We're going into the election and then you have, uh, you know, it, it's a good thing that we've had kind of a bit of a reckoning now with racial justice and, and, and the social justice around it. But 
it's a tense time too. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm, it's no coincidence that it's happened, I think, at, at this time. And you have all the economic suffering that's going on. And I mean, it's just layer after layer after layer. And, you know, in some ways, it's a consolation that, you know, right now it's, it's COVID. I mean, there's COVID, the political environment, there's the economic environment, there's the education environment. And, you know, I consider ourselves fortunate. I always tell our team we're fortunate because we have something to do. We have something that we think like is super important to society right now is to keep everyone learning. Like millions of, literally tens of millions of folks are dependent on us right now. And I think that does help. But at the same time, you know, a lot, you know, we've had charged conversations inside the organization. Are we doing enough? Are we doing enough? for, you know, we are, you know, are we doing enough on the social justice side or, you know, do we need to be more focused on the education side? And these are hard conversations um, where, you know, folks will climb ladders of inference very quickly on, on all sides. And it's just, um, it just gets messy. And, and it, you know, it's on top of all of the, 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 the day-to-day of, of the already, you know, uh, terrifying work if you don't view things in a subject way. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Just talk about overwhelm. Thank you. I, I'm just so glad that you're out there and giving this ray of hope um, about that we'll, we might be able to pull through this, that, that parents trying to educate and work at home will be okay, that our society can come back towards this center of what, what originally made America attract people from all over the world. Uh, we are all immigrants and all have this journey of wanting to create the best life possible for our families. And speaking of, I am thinking of my sisters who work full time at home and have their children there. And thank you for what you're offering to them. So just to go off of the political environment that we're in, um, I know that you've signed the Connect All Students letter to Congress, um, and there's lots of different strategies within EdTech right now. It's a bit fragmented. Um, Could you walk us through what you are trying to do, what you see as the best approach around that? And then we'll get into the details of how you're partnering with with parents and teachers and students um, to be successful. Yeah, you know, this isn't a a shock to anyone what I'm about to say, but, you know, this crisis has put a huge spotlight on the digital divide and you know the digital div- the digital divide was always correlated with the economic divide uh, and now it is going to drive that even further because even in a rich country like the US 30 40% of a lot of cities the kids don't have sufficient internet access especially when now the whole family is dependent on this and you're expected to do several hours of work on a device every day and you know, people make heroic efforts in particular geographies to to help address it, uh, but it really needs to be a national effort where you view re- you view it like clean drinking water or water, you know, or or heat or electricity is just a fundamental utility that you need in every house. And you know, when you think about the 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 trillions that have been put out in stimulus, I think was, we've done two trillion so far, and that you know, right now Congress is debating whether to do another two to four trillion. Less than one percent of that could give every every family in America sufficient internet access, which isn't just valuable for accessing Khan Academy or doing distance learning. It's also crucial for your health to be able to get educated about it, to be economically empowered, to even be able to do distance work or to be able to even look for work. So, you know, there's a lot of, I'm a big fan of infrastructure of all kinds, roads and electrical infrastructure and irrigate, whatever. But I think this is actually one of the most no-brainer forms of infrastructure, lowest hanging fruit that we could do. I think it would it would be a boon to the economy. It would be very empowering uh, for for everybody. So um, 
that to me feels the most obvious. And if we're able to do that, then yes, Khan Academy and then video conferencing and all of this can step in, into the gap. Now, to be clear, even with even if everyone has internet access, I do fear that you know people talk about a K-shaped recovery in the economy. I think we're also going to see, we're seeing a K-shaped education or learning uh, during the COVID crisis where, you know, your your millions of nieces and nephews and, and 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 you know my children and all they're they're doing just fine you know it's stressful for them but they're likely that they're probably at schools that have been able to move faster have have more tech savvy they, they could assume that the fam- the families at home had internet access so they were able to be aggressive with it um and and the families are you know know that oh there's Khan Academy et cetera et cetera while a lot of a lot of other families even if they do have the internet access Parents might not be at home because they're essential workers to support their kids. Uh, there's just, you know, there's, there might just be tough environments at home. Uh, and so that those kids are going to only fall further and further behind. So, you know, this is not a great situation. What I've been saying is as we get through this on the other side of it, we need to view this as like, you know, reconstruction after a war or after a, a natural, a natural disaster. Cause otherwise we're going to see the repercussion of that bottom, the bottom part of that K for, for decades to come. I, that is what terrifies me most. I've, I've been concerned about the digital divide for the last few decades, having always worked in technology companies. It it's, was very aware, apparent to me the, the difference and the widening of that. Um, last couple of years, I was at Google. I focused my work entirely on policy issues around, um, we did a tour we called the next billion users for the students who are coming online for the very first time. They missed desktop, they missed laptop, and now they're coming online for, for the first time in mobile. And so it was really something that's been on my mind for a long time. And then now, even more so of like, we cannot have them left behind. Um, it just really hurts my heartstrings. So walk me through, you have so many efforts that you're doing to reach out to, to all students possible. You've got all kinds of new products that you've developed. Um, walk us through some of the ways in which you feel like we can reach out to these students who maybe are having to uh, educate themselves. I saw this heartbreaking photo early in the pandemic when schools just started reopening. These two uh, brother and sister who were sharing a tablet sitting on the sidewalk outside of Taco Bell because they didn't have Wi-Fi at home. And they were sharing that to educate themselves while their parents who were essential workers were working. How can we reach them? And what are um, some easy tools for even these younger learners who are maybe having to be their own guide? Yeah, you know, the, the based on what you just described, which is very unfortunate, we've seen some school districts do some interesting things, like several districts in Maryland that we we learned about. What they did, they're doing distance learning. So the, the teachers are still, you know, they're safe at home. They're doing distance learning. Most of the kids are doing it from home. But for that, let's say 10% of the population that you just described, they're actually bringing them into the schools and they're providing the internet access, the computers, the lunches, support, keeping them distanced. Uh, so Because it's only, you know, 10% of the kids. Uh, and then they're hiring folks uh, to kind of play that role that many parents are having to play right now of just like, you know, making sure they're on task, making sure that they're supported, uh, et cetera. Uh, But, you know, to me, that's a very, that, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, But even once you uh, get that level, you know, what we're trying to do at Khan Academy is uh, make sure all the learning materials are there. You know, we've been running, uh, we've been creating new courses so that we've always had, especially in math from pre-K all the way through the core of college. We've had Khan Academy kids, which is math, reading and writing, uh, social emotional learning for the kind of ages three through seven crowd. Uh, you know, we've sciences, we've already had a lot, but we're doing a big push now for middle school and high school to have everything in science uh, in, within the next few months. Uh, we've also started to dabble in the humanities. So we're trying to, you know, the vision of Khan Academy is to cover all of the core academic subjects in a personalized way. Uh, 
from pre-K through the core of college. And, you know, I would say pre-COVID, we were about 60% on that journey. And COVID is just making us accelerate that. We've been creating things called get ready for grade level courses, which is, let's say you're entering sixth grade. But we, as we talked about earlier, a lot of kids have tons of gaps from fourth and fifth grade. What if we created another course where you could take a, you could take an assessment and if you do well on it, it means you're ready for sixth grade. But if you don't do well, you have a lot of gaps. You can use that course to fill in all of those gaps so that when you get to sixth grade, and that's the type of thing that I think is necessary, frankly, right now, since so many kids are accruing so many gaps, but especially as we get to some form of normalcy and we have to do that reconstruction type work. Another gap that we saw you know, in March when uh, people started using Khan Academy heavily is that that's great. They can use Khan Academy to learn at their own time and pace. Teachers can keep track of it. But the synchronous video conferencing access was very inconsistent, even within the same school from one teacher to another. And so one of my dreams had always been, well, what if we could layer on some type of person-to-person interaction, tutoring on top of Khan Academy? And so I actually set up a new nonprofit called schoolhouse.world to do exactly that, to where students can say what they need help in, and then vetted tutors can run group tutoring sessions on exactly those topics uh, to, to keep those, those kids going. And then another part of that that's, you know, COVID has put in the air is how do you assess where kids are? You know, letter grades have been really inconsistent during COVID. A lot of the traditional standardized testing has been hard to administer. So w- what we're doing at Schoolhouse is if you master something on Khan Academy and you record yourself while you talk out loud, your reasoning, you submit that to schoolhouse.world, that community, two peers at the same level will review your video that you don't know, random people around the world. And if it looks like it was really your work, you explained yourself well and you got to 90%, then you get credit for that thing. So we'll reissue a little a, a transcript and say, you know, unit one of calculus mastered. And University of Chicago just announced last week that they want to use that for this year's admission cycle. And, and many other universities are interested. So, you know, we're just trying to, on the content side, accelerate as much as possible. Uh, on the training st- parents and teacher side, accelerate as much as possible. And then what are the layers above and beyond that on the live help side and on the uh, certification side that can help us get through COVID and that can also be very helpful once we get, you know, post-COVID. Oh, congratulations on that. That is so needed. My youngest sister is um, in her early 20s. She's just finishing undergrad. This is her final year of undergrad and she's applying for graduate school. She can't even take the GRE or GMAT as she wanted because it's not being offered. So some schools are admitting without it. Some are are just postponing op- offering that. And then so we have the great inconsistencies you brought up. Mm-hmm. I live in Spain, so I'm very um, exposed to the differences between the United States when I hear from my siblings' experiences and what I'm hearing from my, my peers here in Europe, where, for example, we had that outrage over in the UK, they wanted to assign grades just by average mm. instead of on individual performance, which seemed so unfair. It was just on the average of your school, which meant poor, disadvantaged children were just automatically assigned bad grades. And That's of course- horrible. I didn't. I actually didn't know about that. That seems bizarre. This, I'll send you the article. It was really sad. I mean, they were trying to do school. I mean, the schools were just struggling at the end of the school year to figure out what to do and how to level kids because some were had to go to university or get placement into other programs. And so they thought, what can we do? We'll just do right school average all of you. And obviously, that's just so unfair in so many ways, and and really upset students who are working really really hard. Um, to earn something above the average of, of what's performed in their schools. Um, so thank you for offering a dashboard that with measurable results where students can take that into their own hands, especially now where they feel so powerless. 
Like yeah. their future is, is not within their control. And that's the opposite of what you need in those formative years where you're creating your biggest dreams. Um, I'm curious if you can walk us through some of the formal relationships that you're doing with schools or parents or students directly to give them that semblance of control again. For example, I have a couple of friends here in Spain who are elementary school teachers and that pivot has been very hard because you can't put little ones in front of a laptop for very long without some Zoom fatigue going on. Um, and I know that you've done some initiatives around that to kind of help put some refresh or pauses into their studies as well. Yeah, you know, when, when the crisis hit, we, we put out a bunch of lesson plans and calendars for what distance learning can look like, how you can leverage Khan Academy and other things. And, you know, the thing that we've always emphasized, even the early days, is make space for the play, for the connection, for community. And, you know, we've seen our response because, you know, the traditional school system has spent most of the last several months just trying to figure out if they can open or not. And they really haven't had been able to put into a lot of thought of like, okay, if we do open or if we don't open, what does curricula look like in this world where you're using some combination of video conference and and, a, and Khan Academy like tools. And so we said, well, we got to step up and give a view. So we've been very vocal. And you know what, I, what I'm about to say isn't just schooling. I think it applies to even the workplace right now, but especially in schooling where that distance learning is kids main connection to community and socialization. You got to create space for it. And we got to think out of the box. So, you know, if you were doing a 60 minute session every day, uh, with 30 kids, maybe you do 10 minutes at a time with five kids at a time. That's less screen time, but the screen time you're getting is much more interactive. Uh, in general, you should not be lecturing. A lecture over a video conference might as well be a video. I would argue that that's also true in the in-person classroom. Leverage breakout room functionality, things like that. It's super powerful. Put kids in, always ask them questions. I'm going to put you in groups of two or four come up with a solution, come back. That makes it way more engaging. Every 20 minutes or so, just, just say like, close your eyes and draw an elephant, maybe in a breakout room and share it with the, you know, just things that, that keep the blood flowing in different directions. A thing that I've been doing personally, which I found very powerful is where, where possible, turn the screen off and stretch or walk or, you, you know, people would think that like, if I was sitting in a classroom and I just started doing yoga while I'm in the classroom, it would look like I'm not paying attention. But the reality is, you actually are paying attention when you're walking around and because you're, you're able to really focus. I actually think the opposite when, you know, you're in a classroom or on a video conference and you're just looking like this, very easy to not pay attention. Uh, so, but it's just for your health to be able to move around and, and be alive. Uh, and, you know, you're not, your eyes don't have to stay focused at like two feet away from you for like eight hours a day, uh, which is not good for you. Um, so yeah, I, I, and you know, and there's ways you can just completely mix it up these days. You know, there's a lot of negatives of video conference, but there's a lot of positives. There's the switching costs of between classes aren't as high. So you don't have to, you know, you don't have to say, oh, we've got them now. Let's make them stay here for an hour. Yeah. I, to your point about yoga midstream, you remind me of a memory of one of my first uh, Google board of directors meetings that I observed. <laughs> Sergey literally would regularly get up out of his chair and do like handstands in the corner or stretch or something because it engaged his brain in a different way. And you see that pervasive throughout tech companies, but I think Google is really at the forefront of that, of realizing that if you want the best out of your brain, you engage both sides. And that often involves play. That's why we have foosball tables and volleyball courts and all those things that Google campuses are famous for is to engage in both sides. And so thank you for that reminder. I, I I'm going to take that as an action item for myself. <laughs> and well, what's interesting about that, I mean, the example you get, and, you know, Sergey had visited our office back in the early days, and yeah, he, we had like a pull-up bar, and all of a sudden I was like, who's that guy doing pull-ups? Oh, that's Sergey. Um, but, but you know, it is, you know, the Sergey's of the world, I, I also do that at our board meetings, or when I do our offsites, I go for a walk, I say, hey, you know, and, and you know, sometimes the founder 
has the permission to do that. Um, but it, you know, it, it, but a lot of other folks feel the pressure, to like you know, look like they need to look. Uh, but I, I think this is a time. I think just even out post COVID, where everyone should say what makes sense and make the point because it probably makes sense for other people. Yeah, I love that. Oh, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours about what you're doing. Um, I'm wondering how can people, how can our listeners engage with you? You you mentioned maybe opportunities for tutors to get involved, for um, helping each other, for volunteers. Is there ways in which you're being financially supported? What are some action items that users can take or listeners can take away? from listening to this who want to get involved and be part of the solution. Yeah, well, you know, our head of philanthropy would 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 be very mad if I if I didn't at least say that remind folks that we are not for profit, we're funded through philanthropic donations and we do need help because, you know, it's awesome that our costs are 3x of normal, but our server costs are now 3x of normal and we're accelerating all this content. Uh, you know, and I've told our team for the most part we just have to do what's right. I mean, once again, suffolk action. Let's just do what's right. And let's hope the universe conspires to support us. So we're running at a deficit so that we can do all of this work. So we need that support. Uh, you know, we, we, we have corporations who partner with us to sponsor content. I actually think that only, that not only does that do good through Khan Academy, but it, it, you know, we do reach a good chunk of all the students, especially all the folks that they're going to want to hire in the next five to 10 years. They're all using Khan Academy. So they should think about that. You know, the, the schoolhouse.world effort, People could go tutor tomorrow. They can actually sign their kids up to to get tutoring. If they, you know, volunteer places um, that are under resourced, let them know that there's free tutoring going on. The irony right now, right now, we have more tutors than kids that need tutoring. So there's we could take on a few thousand kids who need tutoring right now. Uh, we just got to have to get the word out. Um, you know, a big thing is just getting the word out, especially with traditionally under resourced uh, communities. Uh, I think is really valuable, but you know, pe- people can reach out. Uh, I'm I'm Con- Con academy.org and you know, I'm I'm always intrigued by by wait, you know, especially folks who want to help out. And you know, as you mentioned, there was 46 translation projects. If people know other languages, it's really localization. They redo the videos in many cases. Um, there, there's there's ways to to volunteer for that as well. Amazing. Well, thank you for being this ray of sunshine in a world in a year that's been particularly dark and disorienting for people. Thank you for creating a place where people can come together and really help each other. And uh, as you said, create the entrepreneurs and the um, leaders of, of our future. So thank you for creating a resource around that. Um, my last question, which I like to ask all the guests, is what, is what gives you hope for the future? What gets you excited about what's coming next? Leave us with a little ray of hope. Oh, you know, I, I run, as I said earlier, I run delusionally optimistic. I have to t- shut it down a lot because it, it one could argue it's delusional, but no, what we're going through, I, I think kind of real growing pains as a society right now. Uh, but they're growing pains that are going to get us to a better place. You know, I, I have a theory, let's call it a joke theory that I share with a lot of folks where I say, you know, conic, you know, there's so many things in my Khan Academy journey that have seen seem, you know, I, I'm a rational person. I, I understand statistics, but they just seem not just random chance. And so, you know, I've said, well, maybe benevolent aliens are helping Khan Academy so that Khan Academy can help prepare humanity for first contact. Uh, and, and because it's just all of these things that seem to conspire here, there, and, um, and, and, and do seem to, even though they're painful in the moment, uh, work out for the better in, in the long run. And so I think we're going into a world that in 10 or 20 years, Literally anyone on the planet is going to have access to world-class education, not just to be able to learn and practice their own time and pace, become part of a global learning community, to be able to prove what they know, uh, to be able to 
uh, get credit for it. And that to be able to immediately translate into getting into graduate school, getting a, getting into college, uh, getting a job, and it can happen at any age. So as you know, technology changes the world faster and faster and, you know, you have self-driving trucks and what are, what are all of those for the most part men going to do? Uh, it, well, we're going to have mechanisms for them to be able to rescale, reprove what they know, and that for employers to really say, wow, there's some really great people now that they've been recertified. So I, I genuinely believe uh, that that's going to happen on the education front, which has you know, been somewhat stagnant for a couple of hundred years now. I think you're going to see some dramatic change in the next 10 years. Uh, and I think you're going to see similar things on other fronts, uh, that even though they look tense and hard right now, uh, in 10 or 20 years, it's going to get a lot better. I couldn't agree more. I've really seen some amazing pivots happen. Many companies have had their success fast forwarded by five to 10 years at least because they've been forced to make some really hard pivots and big decisions. And honestly, I think benevolent aliens is not the weirdest thing I could imagine for this year. So I would totally believe that back in- When, when COVID hit, I was like, maybe they're not benevolent. But anyway, we'll, <laughs> we'll leave that. <laughs> at least one of them was because I have to believe that some time traveler came to you back in 2008 saying, the fate of the world is in your hands, Sal, please help us. And here you are doing it. So thank you so much for your time and for what you're building and for the good you're putting out in the world. We wish you all the best and hope that you, lots of our listeners jump in and start to contribute as well. No, thanks, Anne. Thanks for having me be part of this. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Bet on Yourself podcast. If you're like me, you have a lot of new insights and ideas of things you want to implement from this episode. Don't worry if you were listening to this while walking the dog or putting a baby to sleep or driving and didn't have hands for you to take notes. We've done the hard work for you. Check out the show notes here in your podcast app or on my website, annhyatt.co, for additional resources. While you're there, you can also sign up for my newsletter, which always supplements these podcast themes with additional free resources. May I ask for a quick favor? Please click on that follow or subscribe button here in your podcast app so you don't miss an episode and give us a five-star rating. I'd love it if you'd also share this via your social media with your friends and tag me so that I can see what resonated with you, who you would like to hear on future episodes, and what topics are on your mind. We'll be back next week with even more content to support you in your big bets. I'll see you then.